We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Can you hear us now? Let us know if you can hear us. Or we will call back in. There is sound. Great. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Another week of The Truth Perspective. Um, it's January 10th, 2015. And in the studio today, we have returning Carolyn. Hi there. Elon. Hey there. And William. Good afternoon. And I'm your host, Harrison Cayley. Uh, this week, a week of some crazy news, um, some big stories that have come out, either you know breaking news or developing stories. So I guess we'll just get – oh, before we get started – I just want to reiterate for all our listeners, if you want to call in at any time and give a comment, tell us we're wrong, tell us we're right, maybe add a little bit of background that we're missing, uh, feel free to call in. Uh, you can call in via Skype by going to the Blog Talk Radio, just your the regular page where we've got the show there. You can see the instructions. Otherwise, the, the guest call-in number is 718-508-9499. So we hope to hear from you today. But to start out, um, well, of course, I'll mention it now. The big news this week, of course, is the Charlie Hebdo shooting in France. But we're actually going to wait. We're going to discuss that in a little bit. Because first, there was something in the news before that that was kind of making headways. There were big headlines, and that kind of disappeared um, when these events happened in France. So we're going to talk about that. And that is the so-called Jeffrey Epstein sex scandal, and this deals with the billionaire American Jeffrey Epstein, who was um, actually charged with how do you how do they call it like trafficking? Was it trafficking? Yeah. So uh, with a minor, so he was basically trafficking and having indecent sexual relationships with minors, and and procuring them for others. Yes, and so uh, the story was actually started years ago because it was in uh, 20 or 2005 that um, at least one 14-year-old and, well, one 14-year-old and several other teens came forward. Their stories uh, came out and it led to a conviction um, and against Jeffrey Epstein. The story, however, goes a bit further, well, of course the story goes further back than that because this was going on for a long time. And uh, Vicky Ward for Vanity Fair actually wrote an article in twenty in 2003, so two years before he was convicted. And so this article was c kind of just a, a piece on, on Epstein and who he was, um, 
because he kind of he kind of came out of nowhere. He, he got on the news for uh, flying Bill Clinton to one of his like private islands on his private jet or something, and so so everyone started asking, well, who is this guy? And uh, so he was this billionaire, rich guy, but no one knew where he'd got his money. Mm-hmm. Vicky Ward uh, said that she had prepared this piece all through 2002 with the 2003 publication date in Vanity Fair. And it was supposed to be your celebrity profile thing, but she kept finding all of these girls, at least one mother and daughter who were talking about it. And she put it in her piece and her editor killed it, just basically left it out. And she said it was very, very upsetting because she really felt for the family for this for this child. And, and it was actually three victims that she talked to. That's right. That's right. And uh, so she later on uh, just speculated how much pressure must have been brought to bear on her editor to leave this out and just have this little celebrity puff piece. It was very upsetting to her. So the the, the article got published, but without any of the allegations about the underage girls, because at the time she she'd noticed that there, Vicky Ward had noticed that there were two kind of odd things, or at least two odd things about Epstein. One was the source of his money, because no one could find out where this guy actually got his millions and billions of dollars. And second was his strange lifestyle. He had this kind of lavish lifestyle, and you know, he was always surrounded by beautiful women, and and uh, if you read the the article, Vic, well, Vicky Ward just published an article recently about her previous article, um, and she talked about talking to Jeffrey Epstein and just what a strange, creepy experience it was, and how he kind of he, he even kind of stalked her, had his people stalk her because he was kind of keeping tabs on what she was finding out, what she was going to write about, and but at the same time he didn't seem too worried. He was just kind of flippant and. Um, it, it just struck her as odd. And one of the questions that, she, that he kept asking her was, well, what do you know about the girls? What do you know about the girls? And that kind of, that got her, her wondering and wondering if there was a bigger thing to this. And of course, like Carolyn said, the, the, the biggest part of the article got cut because the, the guy working at Vanity Fair, um, you know, thought, you know, these are unsubstantiated charges. There's no proof for them. It might lead to legal difficulties. So we're just going to get rid of that information. And so then, two years later, he's actually convicting your old and other teams. And during that lawsuit, um, the, his lawyer even tried to discredit these witnesses, understandably, his lawyer being Alan Dershowitz. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll get back to Alan Dershowitz, because he he'll be coming up in the discussion a few times today. And, but uh, so there were those those convictions and additional charges or allegations and multiple lawsuits settled out of out of court or just you know they came to some kind of deal so yeah basically they paid these paid these victims off so there were just there was a lot a lot of victims a lot of stuff going on and so this was in 2005 now it's just come out recently that it wasn't just Epstein Epstein was throwing kind of big parties, and these parties were pretty famous around the circles of people he's involved with. And so recently it's come out that involved with these parties and just with Epstein in general, he knew a ton of people, like high-level people. Um, and so the allegation and the, the stuff coming forward is that along with you know Epstein and his sex slaves, that um, Prince Andrew 
was involved. And one of the one of the women that has come forward has said that she was basically kept as Epstein's sex slave and kind of farmed out to these different individuals to, to sleep with them. And Prince Andrew was one of the people that she was forced to sleep with. So that kind of has caused a big, or did cause a big wave in the news. Um, of course, this coming on the heels of the, the the other big pedophile scandal in the UK, which kind of started with uh, revelations about Jimmy Seville, and and has kind of spiraled since then, and out kind of spiraled out of control from there, um, involving multiple people at the BBC. Investigations into MPs and you know people involved in government. It's basically this. Um, all signs point towards there being this giant kind of pedophile ring among the people in power, especially um, in schools that were for orphans and for wards of the state. Um, there was a lot of access and hundreds of students from the 60s, 70s, and 80s who were children at that time have been coming forward with allegations and trying to create some kind of lawsuit to, to go after these people. And they many of them had come forward, for example, in the 80s, and there were some kind of investigations going on, reports filed, and those were disappeared. Um, files have been lost. Uh, no investigations were followed through with, and all these people got off scot-free, and the victims are left with no justice. So all this stuff is coming out. It's it's so the the BBC and and the the MP pedophile scandals have been going on for like last year or two um, before that. You know, and but this thing goes on for decades. Really, any country you look at, you can find these kind of scandals. Whether it's the Franklin scandal in the U.S. or the Dutroux scandal in um, Belgium, and which kind of had branches and strings out to the Netherlands and France. Um, and so these, it, it kind of all ties together. And so these things have been going on for decades, and it's only every once in a while that it kind of um, there's a blip on the radar, and you can see it in the news. And so this is this has been going on. There's been tons of stories about it. Then this Epstein comes out, Epstein thing comes out with Prince Andrew, and so then now more information has been released, namely the so all the people that Epstein was involved with and the connections that he had. So it turns out that you know in his little black book of of phone numbers and addresses. He had something like 21 different pieces of contact information for Bill Clinton. He had ties with uh, politicians from various countries, including Israel, um, um, celebrities, all kinds of high-level people. He had a direct line into Balmoral, which is one of the royal family's biggest states in Scotland. Nobody gets that number. So just like just like the Jimmy Seville and his connections and the you know he you could see pictures of him with queen and all kinds of high level people and you know just laughing and having a good time epstein seems to be the same way so what is it about these guys that end up getting revealed as you know violent pedophiles and having all these friends in high places do they just manage to like weasel their way up there or you know what's going on there well they have the chance to uh like any good entrepreneur, they have found a need and they're filling it in their own perverse way. Yeah, and so the the point being that it like it's not like all these people involved in the who know Epstein are just totally deceived by this guy. That may be the case for some of them, but the the kind of chilling 
aspect that has come out is that a lot of these people are complicit. They're friends with him because they're the same as him. Two are violent pedophiles. So one of the people um, in like in in his contact list, like I mentioned, was Bill Clinton. And so we can probably imagine the kinds of things Bill Clinton was getting up to. And the fact that he was going to parties um, at um, Epstein's place while these things were going on. And that's been kind of, that's been documented that these things were going on while a lot of these meetings and get togethers were taking place. So it's, it's, it would be very odd and improbable that these people didn't know what was going on. And that's the kind of big thing. So, so in this new lawsuit that's kind of, that's coming up against Epstein, I don't know the exact details of the of the, the lawsuits. There's even talk that you know they might call or they should call Bill Clinton in as a witness to kind of give any information that might you know let them know what was really going on. And they should call Prince Andrew too, but yeah. apparently they're working on a law that gives the royal family basically immunity against anything, whatever in any situation. So that may not happen. Um, yeah. But, it's just, you know, and, and go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, back to Alan Dershowitz, it turns out that the, one of the ladies making these claims has implicated Alan Dershowitz, Epstein's lawyer, saying that he too was involved in taking advantage of these so-called sex slaves. Now, anyone that's familiar with Alan Dershowitz, will either be horrified and shocked that one of the bastions of democracy and and uh, freedom and justice could ever be involved in such a thing or they'll say well you know you know that's uh sounds pretty likely to me of course <laughs> of course how could it be any other way because Alan Dershowitz has been one of the biggest american defenders of israel um for years he is fairly eloquent, which helps because he is a, a famous lawyer. He's a good lawyer, so he knows what he's doing when he gets on TV or the radio and makes his case. And if you're, if you're not familiar with Alan Dershowitz, you know, just search him on YouTube. You can listen to some of his talks. He's usually, he usually makes appearances on, you know, talk radio and, and news channels and stuff like that and spews his nonsense. He, of course... Uh made his bread and butter and his name by defending Klaus von Bülow in that famous case in the 90s um, about a, a guy who uh, allegedly poisoned and killed his very rich wife. Uh, so it was made into a movie. Um, and uh, this is this is basically how Dershowitz uh, made his name, by defending who was probably someone who murdered his wife. The other thing, just as a couple of side notes, uh, Noam Chomsky once said that he was never so creeped out being in the same room with another person as he was with Alan Dershowitz because his personal presence, as opposed to the words that come out of his mouth, were just so jarring. He said it was the worst experience he'd ever had in his life. And well, that, go ahead. Well, that might have was that Chomsky or Finkelstein. Oh, Finkelstein. Yeah, Finkelstein. Right. Finkelstein said that, yeah. I've, oh, yeah. I've actually got a clip from the talk where he said that. Oh. So I don't have that bit where he said how creepy it was, but I've got the bit leading up to that. So it's a bit bad quality, so we'll listen to it, and if uh, we'll see how it sounds, and we'll, we'll summarize it after if it's not clear. When I was asked to debate Professor Dershowitz, I was really kind of shocked 
at his facility, his capacity to just brazenly lie. It did surprise me, because he has this remarkable capacity. Some of you have heard the expression of pathological liar. How many heard that expression? <laughs> well, everybody throws around the expression. I never quite knew what it meant. It was, to me, an interesting sight to observe because Professor Dershowitz is able, simultaneously, to believe every word he's saying. He does. He believes every word he's saying. And simultaneously, he knows that every single word he's saying is a lie. So, if you couldn't hear it there, the gist was that um, Chomsky, or Finkelstein, was uh, on Democracy Now! and had a debate with Dershowitz uh, several years ago. And you can view the, the full debate on YouTube. And so, John, or Finkelstein, sorry, is saying that it was just a, a strange experience because Dershowitz seems to have this incredible capacity to lie. And that uh, Finkelstein had heard the word pathological liar before and never really meant until he was in the same room with Alan Dershowitz. And after this clip, he goes into a bit more detail. We won't play it, but he, he says that, well, this actually makes sense because as a defense lawyer, this is what Dershowitz is trained to do. He's trained to be totally convincing, to appear as if he believes every word he's saying, even when, for example, he might know that his client is guilty. And we see the same kind of mentality with Hillary Clinton. I mean, we talked about her, her little, uh, the, the interview clip of her doing, pretty much doing the same thing with a, with a pedophile client uh, years ago. And so then, then Finkelstein says how creeped out he was by it. As another side note, kind of very tangential, we've talked before about uh, the totally incomprehensible behavior of world leaders with respect to decisions in different situations and the the possibility of blackmail figuring into it when, when, world, when leaders of countries make decisions that are patently bad for them. And so hobnobbing with Epstein and folks like that certainly gives the opening for a lot of pressure on these world leaders. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when these things come out in ways that they don't predict, it's something that they've got to quote, you know, put the lid on. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, they use this kind of stuff to hold over people they want in their control, party line. But on the other hand, you know, this information can't get out unless they're the ones with the power to use it. And so we saw a similar but pretty light example example with uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn um, with his his little his thing in New York was it with the lady at the hotel. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about the kind of people involved in these sorts of things and the kind of things that they're involved in, that was a relatively light thing to get caught with and to be exposed for. I mean, usually if something like that would happen, it would be fairly easily covered up. Wasn't it to? Wasn't he up for the presidency of the IMF, and this whole thing scuttled it? That's exactly the case. Mm -hmm. He was. Um, he had made a speech not one month earlier about how the IMF uh, should be thinking about um, in more equitable terms for the common person. Oh, Sacrilege. Yes, and uh, apparently that riled up a few people who were there to listen to him, uh, who were in very high positions of power. And not one month later, uh, the 
scandal blows up in his face and uh, the possibility of becoming uh, president and, and really following through on these visions of his are made impossible. Well, just because I love him so much, I want to get back to Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> and we'll, we'll tie this into to the Charlie Hebdo thing. But uh, just to give you an idea of the kind of lies and nonsense that Dershowitz spews on a regular basis, here's another clip of Dershowitz talking about the situation in Israel and Palestine. The ratio of deaths, 6 to 1 or 10 to 1, is far far too low. It ought to be 20 or 30 or 40 to 1 if we're talking about the deaths of terrorists versus the deaths of innocent babies and children. Israel should try as hard as it can to reduce that ratio and make it 1 in 100, 1 in 1,000, and ultimately 0 in 1,000. Every Israeli citizen that dies is a tragedy. Every Palestinian terrorist that dies is a victory for justice. Palestinian terrorists target innocent civilians. They try to kill as many babies and children and women and civilians as they possibly can. Israel never targets civilians. It has no reason for targeting civilians. It would lose the war of public opinion if it ever targeted a civilian. It occasionally, accidentally kills a civilian. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So there, if it wasn't clear at the beginning, he was talking about the ratio of deaths between Israelis and, Palestine, and Palestinians and saying that the ratio should be something like a thousand Palestinians dead to zero Israelis dead. Oh, but they're only terrorists. They're only terrorists. And Israel only occasionally, accidentally uh, kills an innocent person. <laughs> oh, oh. Wasn't it close to 3,000 in the last uh, protective edge? 3,000 deaths. Well, the the figures I I found were like 2,100. Now this might have been an early figure. Okay. And out of that 20, out of that 2,000, essentially seven out of ten were civilians. Mm -hmm. And about 500, I think, were children. Yeah. yeah. And there were a total of 13 Israelis killed. Most of them were soldiers, and three of them were friendly fire. Mm -hmm. It's just ridiculous. So just the amount, just the number of lies in that in that one statement that Dershowitz gave is just astounding. That, that he can say that Palestinian terrorists target as or intend to kill as many babies, Israeli babies, as possible, is just utterly ridiculous. When you look at the numbers on how few Israeli children die in the conflict and how many Palestinians die, and it's well. Well, he is good. I'm, I, I'll <laughs> yeah. give it to him. I mean, he takes truth and, and just turns it right upside down and says it with conviction. And, uh, you know, if you don't know anything at all about the facts of the matter and you go in there listening to him, uh, you know, you, you might end up believing what the guy is saying. Yeah. Well, I want to play another clip from the, the, the debate he had with Norman Finkelstein. Now, in this one, the debate is framed around a book that... Dershowitz had written called The Case for Israel, basically arguing that Israel is this great country and has the right to do whatever it wants and doesn't do anything wrong ever, and that the Palestinians are totally evil. And it goes through um, kind of history of, of modern Israel and things like that. And so, so Finkelstein basically 
shredded his book, took it apart, pointed out all the misrepresentations and lies and plagiarism, and just kind of demolished this book and had this debate with him. Now, when you watch the debate, Finkelstein will bring up a point, and of course, Dershowitz, in lawyerly in his lawyerly fashion, just um, evades, and it's just, it's like uh, water off a duck's back with the, the just the way in which he's able to deflect any criticism and turn any obvious lie in his book around. It, it's it's just stunning to, to watch. And so in this clip, Finkelstein has just quoted a statement that Dershowitz has made that essentially, or that Israel has not killed one, has not willfully killed one civilian ever. None. And so um, Finkelstein goes through his book, reads some statements, and then says, oh, okay, we'll look at this this report from Human Rights Watch. And he quotes the report saying that there's massive evidence that there are numerous examples of intentional and willful killings of civilians. And he gives examples and he gives the names and the circumstances. And and so Dershowitz, of course, denies it and says that, uh, well, <laughs> and Dershowitz had even given an offer. He'd said that he would pay $10,000 to anyone that could point out one thing that was wrong in his book. And so Dershowitz is like, okay, well, give me the $10,000 because here, and he goes, you know, point by point. But this is Dershowitz's rationale, his argument for why Israel never kills innocent civilians. The very idea that an Israeli soldier who are trained in the idea of the holiness of arms, who get better training about avoiding civilians, who are, punished, who are punished for killing Let civilians. Let Norman Finkelstein oh, right. read a response. Let, You're making the point there, no that in general Mr. you wouldn't Dershowitz think they would. gave a very lovely bar mitzvah right. speech. <laughs> that was Finkelstein at the end there. Um, so his entire argument was that Israel has no incentive for killing civilians because it would be a bad idea. Well, he's got one thing right, it would be a bad idea. And to reply to something he said in the previous in one of the previous clips, Israel is losing the battle for public opinion because of these killings because they do intentionally and willfully kill civilians. But that's not an argument to say that there's no incentive for it because there may be no rational incentive for it, but murder is rarely rational and and pushed, you know, used in service of public opinion and stuff like that. People kill people because they want to kill people. And they think they have a good reason to. Yeah. And it happens. It happens in war, in every war where people kill people and kill innocent civilians. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, surely Kiev doesn't have any rational incentive for torturing and murdering civilians. That doesn't stop it from happening. What you've got to do is look at the actual evidence. And the actual evidence shows that, yes, Israel has, does, and will continue killing willfully civilians. So, anyways, that is Alan Dershowitz, who has been accused of using sex slaves with Jeffrey Epstein. And, of course, Dershowitz's response to these allegations where he bas he essentially says that he is going to sue this woman for defamation and have her lawyers um, disbarred for daring to 
accuse him of such things which he vehemently denies. It is absolutely absurd to say that he would do such a thing. It's totally untrue. Well, I just want to say one more thing is that you, you wonder how a man like Epstein gets to the position he's in. And, you know, I made kind of this slip remark about entrepreneurs. But uh, Cluckley made a very perceptive remark. Uh, this is Harvey Cluckley, who wrote uh, The Mask of Sanity, which was kind of the original um, seminal work <clears throat> excuse me, on the study of psychopathy. And he details many uh, case studies in his book of different types and their effects on their family around them. But he made the remark about several that he ran across who were actually very respected members of their various communities, doctors and so forth. And he, he came to the conclusion that trying to maintain this mask of sanity, which these very public figures need to do, is is exhausting to them and that they need the occasional, and he put it, vacation in filth. This is their way of kind of resting and recharging and getting to express their true nature and, I guess, gather enough energy to be able to put the facade back on and get back in the public eye. Yeah, so we've been saying it for years, and in recent years, even the mainstream media is saying it, that psychopaths become politicians. And so that's become kind of common knowledge, but what – and even to the point where you have people like Kevin Dutton and others say, oh, this, is, this isn't such a bad thing. I mean, psychopaths have certain qualities that make them, um, you know, good for the job, basically. You know, they don't feel stressed. They think everything that they do is just great, and they can do things without the the – the drawbacks and the, the hesitations caused by having a conscience. And yet, at the same time, you see that not only are politicians, yes, psychopaths, they also happen to have a great deal of, um, a, a very great tendency towards being pedophiles and violent pedophiles, and they take these vacations into filth. So when you think about politicians and how bad they are, take whatever you think and then multiply it by a thousand. And that's probably how bad they really are. And if you can't imagine that, then just read a book like Nick Bryant's The Franklin Scandal to get an idea of what really goes on at these parties that they have. And then I'm sure went on in Epstein's parties and the parties with all these MPs in the UK and probably all over the world. And then to get an idea of the kind of uh, um, black ops, um, I put like the blackmail angle, um, I'd recommend reading Sibel Edmonds' novel, uh, Lone Gladio, because she weaves all these kind of things into the novel in a very kind of entertaining but at the same time realistic way. How these things probably actually do happen, how the blackmail works, what goes on, behind the scenes and what ends up happening um, all over the world. So do yourself a favor and get informed on that to understand what's really going on when these stories break out, like Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein and Alan Dershowitz. So we'll see what happens with Alan Dershowitz. But to make it a tie into our next topic, because Alan Dershowitz is also involved in this one in a way, well, we had on Wednesday the attacks in Paris on the Charlie, I was mispronounced it, um, the satirical magazine that had that has published pretty offensive cartoons um, 
depicting uh, the prophet Muhammad and various other religions. And so just to give a, a brief rundown for those who don't know, on Wednesday, at least, well, initial reports said that there were probably three guys, but um, let's just say there were two. We don't know for sure. These two guys basically stormed the building of this magazine while they were having an editorial meeting. So kind of all the all the main editors and cartoonists were there. They went into the, the office, declared that they were you know there on behalf of Al-Qaeda, and they were um, getting revenge for the insults against the prophet that these, that this magazine had had done, and opened fire and killed 10 of the employees there in addition to two police officers. They then um, made, a, made their getaway, got in their car, um, and escaped from this high-speed chase and um, ran out of gas, hijacked a new car, ran out of gas again, hijacked a new car. And so eventually, um, yesterday, they kind of got to the end of the line, um, had another encounter with the police, um, made their way to this printing house building, um, holed up there with one hostage, and then came out guns a-blazing, apparently, and were both shot and killed. So this is, that's the rough outline of what happened with that. At the same time, on Thursday, uh, a different hostage-taking situation came up in um, a kosher supermarket. So yeah, this one guy who who had told, he, well, he took hostages at this supermarket, ended up killing killing four people, allegedly, and himself being killed by the police. And one of the hostages from that supermarket told the media that he had told him or he had told the people in the in the room there and he had, and the the hostage had overheard conversations like over the phone and stuff that this guy apparently knew the two brothers he was there um he was co- he had coordinated with them so these two these two brothers first of all um you know after this had happened first of all no one knew who these guys were um when they during the attacks they were masked so you couldn't tell who they were um but very quickly the names of three suspects came out in the news Apparently, first on Twitter, wherever we heard that before. So uh, these guys' names had come out on Twitter, and it said these two brothers, um, Saeed and Sharif Kouachi. And along with a third guy, um, name of Hamid Murad, an 18-year-old. Now, immediately, this Hamid um, turned himself in to the to the police because he'd heard his name as being a suspect. Well, it turns out he was in class at university while this was happening. And so he had a perfect alibi. His his uh, fellow students and his professors vouched for his whereabouts, saying that he was in class while this was happening. Now, reading the news reports, it turns out that he apparently is the is somehow related to these two brothers or some connection, like his his wife Oh yeah, his wife was apparently friends with these two guys, the two brothers' wives. So there was a connection between them. Now, how they managed to to get this that wrong, I don't know. So these two brothers, um, these two brothers were killed. Then the guy at the kosher supermarket was killed. The hostage saying that he overheard about the connections between them and that this guy was 
basically operating. Oh, the one thing that he'd said is that he represents or he is fighting for or something like that, uh, the Islamic State. So he basically, said, basically told them, I'm ISIS, while this was happening. And now they're tying this this uh, third guy, the kosher supermarket guy, to uh, the shooting of a policewoman on Thursday. There was uh, an incident where a policewoman was shot in the street um, on Thursday. At first they were saying it was an unrelated incident, but now they're saying that, he, that this is the same guy that had done that. Apparently he said that he stated this. Uh, I did. I did the policeman. Okay. Something like that. When he was in the middle of this hostage taking thing. So. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's just get into some more details. So, first of all, brothers. Um, well, it turns out that they are not just these kind of unknown guys that came out of nowhere. They kind of had a history, and a history of um, being on the police's radar. Sharif, one of the two brothers, was on a global watch list. The U.S. had him on their no-fly list for years. In 2005, he tried to fly to Syria in order to join the Iraqi insurgency. So this is the Zarqawi insurgency, al-Qaeda in Iraq. But they stopped him from doing so. And then in 2008, he was arrested and charged, uh, convicted for three years on charges of terrorism. Now, he only served one and a half years before being let out. And this was for providing recruits for the Iraqi insurgency. And some, quote, some, cl- close, some source close to French security services, end quote, told CNN that he had been to Syria and he returned in August of 2014. And then there are other reports saying that um, that the other brother, Saeed, was trained by al-Qaeda in Yemen. I believe this was in 2011. And that after the, the, the I think it was after the training in Yemen, the brothers were monitored, they were surveilled. So they had surveillance on them until July of last year, of 2014. So these guys not only had a history of brushing, brushings with the law, they were being surveilled. They had um, ties with um, al-Qaeda in Yemen, allegedly experienced in Syria. Um, they were chummy-chummy with the Iraqi insurgency. And then in July, they're no longer, mon- they're no longer monitored. And then in August... They allegedly get back from Syria, where we assume they were helping out with the moderate rebels in their war against President Assad. And so they hang out for a bit since August, uh, you know, so for August until December, and then this happens. So a curious series of events there. Now, like so many others like it, it seems to follow the the pattern, right? Where you've got these guys with a history of involvement and connections with um, counterintelligence or intelligence agencies in their respective countries who are then allegedly involved in some terrorist attack who are then killed in the final encounter. And so 
we can't hear any part of their side of the story. Now, of course, there are a lot of conspiracies floating, floating out there, of course. Um, one of which, now at first, when this had happened, because there's a history of similar things happening where the you have we've got the video of the attacks, like we know these things actually happened, but these guys were wearing masks, and then we have the, the their names released to the media, and then police. Well, just to make it easier, apparently one of them left their ID in a car. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this is like passport redux, you know. Exactly. So. So yeah, they found this guy had apparently accidentally left his ID in their getaway car. <laughs> so that right there made me wonder at first, well, are these even the guys? Like, Because it's pretty standard operating procedure to have someone carry out an attack. This is kind of, you know, one of those, a gladio type attack, otherwise known as a false flag, to carry out an attack. So you get trained professionals to do the attack. And then you say, oh, is this nobody guy? It was this guy. And then the police go after them, after him. And then they shoot and kill him because he was obviously guilty. And then, you know, there's no one to he, – he's not there to defend himself. He's not alive. It's pretty easy to do that. Now, in this case, I personally don't know one way or the other. I think, you know, it could have been these two guys. But um, um, could not have been. I don't know. But one of the things – one of the, as the weird aspects about this case is that when you watch the videos and you, list, and you hear the eyewitnesses – that saw it happening, these guys acted like professionals. Like they knew what they were doing. They had combat training. And so you can see this on the videos and the way they move and their hand signals and just the, the calm demeanor, like they're just going through the motions, like muscle memory. And this is a, um, an observation that a lot of the witnesses have made, just how calm these guys were. They first they entered the, the Charlie Hebdo building, just very calmly said who they are, what they're there to do, did it, left, um, you know, shot that cop on the street, got in the car. When they were in the car, when they were hijacking, when they went to the to the gas station to, to get a new car, very calm, just saying what they needed to do, who they were, and getting on with business. But when they get to the their final destination, that printing house where the eventual shootout, apparently they, they so they had their Kalashnikovs and uh, a rocket propelled grenade launcher and they come out guns blazing apparently and no one gets hurt. Hmm. Not so, very professional. Yeah. What happened to all this training? You'd think that if they're going to go out, they're going to go out with a bang. That the that they the hostage the hostage got away, um, survived, no injuries as far as I know. None of the police officers were hurt or injured. So you know either they you know for what you know who knows what really happened. I don't know. Maybe maybe it wasn't exactly as presented. Maybe you know they were just very efficiently by the police involved and didn't have the opportunity to to um you know give any kind of uh defense on their way out or offense um but well there's so many threads to this it's you know the um just whether or not an attack on Charlie Hebdo was was justified uh the soccer weighs in on that saying uh that this Saker. not taker Sorry, the faker. Um, uh, he uh, talked about why he is not Charlie Hebdo. Uh, apparently, that that's a big um, thing going around on Facebook and people posting pictures on Twitter of this Je suis Charlie. Um, 
they were deliberately provocative. It's almost like they were another setup to inflame the whole Muslim thing in Western Europe. Um, I found a very interesting article dating back to 2009 where one of their senior cartoonists, this guy was 82, was fired for producing an anti-Semitic cartoon. So apparently you can mock the Muslim religion all you like, but, you know, um, Jewish is totally, totally off base, off limits. You can't mm-hmm. go near it. So that was very, very interesting. But he, he made a, a really good point. Um said there's an expression in Russian called spitting in someone's soul. It is fully applicable here. When Charlie Hebdo published the caricatures of the prophet and when they ridiculed him in a deliberately rude and provocative manner, they knew what they were doing. They were very deliberately, deeply, deliberately offending 1.6 billion Muslims worldwide. Now, why would you want to do that? <laughs> it's, it's silly. So, you know, it makes you wonder who's actually behind Charlie Hebdo. Some people just have no class. That too. <laughs> and the way I – well – so the way it's played out, we've got this Je suis Charlie thing going around all over the world. People saying, I am Charlie, like in solidarity with them. Well, you know, do these people really know what they're saying, who, who they're identifying with by saying I am Charlie? If you look at the some of the cartoons, they're pretty crass and uh, explicit and just all around in bad taste. And, you know, it's it's kind of like if you were to have, well... This is all a talk about free speech, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Free speech. It's so great. It's so democracy. important. Free, free, free speech and democracy. Now, at the same time, you know, this is taking place in France. And like you said, Carolyn, there was the one guy that was fired for for producing a cartoon that was deemed anti-Semitic. So there you've got a little bit of a double standard when it comes to free speech. At this, And, and then... Going a bit further, this would be kind of like if you've got one of those Nazi guys in Ukraine, um, let's say a Nazi reporter. Let's say a Nazi reporter was killed in in Ukraine. Everyone's saying, well, I am this Nazi reporter. How many people would really say that if they knew what he actually was? I mean, you can defend free speech all you want, and most people, and a lot of people do, but it, it's just it just strikes me as odd that these people are would identify with Charlie when they probably don't agree with. Well, they probably wouldn't if they knew what they actually published. Well, free, free speech is like a one of those little Pavlovian knee-jerk things. Oh, yes, free speech is good, but they never question what the speech is. Well, marching in France today, all in solidarity with that. And then tomorrow you're going to have a, another rally with 30 world leaders, and they're going to be marching down the street. Also in solidarity. I saw this. I saw a picture on Twitter this morning. Talk about the irony. Poroshenko is laying flowers. He's a Ukrainian president. Mm-hmm. Okay, laying flowers at a Charlie Hebdo memorial. Mm-hmm. Like this guy's done in more Ukraine reporters than you can possibly think about. Yeah, he's going to join in on the march as long <clears throat> as well as Angela Merkel, David Cameron. Matteo Renze from Italy, Mariano Rajoy from Spain, Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president. Uh, we've got Ahmed Dantoglu from Turkey and a bunch of Muslim African leaders, Avigdor Lieberman from Israel. 
And Sergey Lavrov from Russia is also going to be there. And Nicholas Sarkozy, of course. But I haven't seen anything from uh, from the U.S. Mm. I wonder if they're all on somebody's phone list. Well, there, there, like there are two two different issues here, at least. So you know, don't get us wrong. I mean, what happened was horrible, and I think there should be demonstrations, you know, and people um, coming out with support and and being in solidarity for the fact that these people were murdered in cold blood. That's one issue. It's another issue to to make this uh, uh, an issue about free speech and identifying with these people when, like I said. If people knew the kind of things these guys published, they probably wouldn't do that. Yeah. And just just the amount of hypocrisy. For example, we have the tw- 12 people dead in that one instance. Um, the number goes up to 17 or 20 when you add in the, what has happened over the past or the subsequent few days. And look at all the media attention this gets when there are thousands of people that have died in Ukraine last year, and it continues. And where's the media attention to that? Where are the people speaking out about that? In in the West, all you hear is that, you know, Poroshenko is such a great guy and they've got to stop the Russian invasion. Right. right. Well, like all good crises, um, this again is the sake He writes that uh, what is going on here, only one aspect, but one he's focusing on, the EU one percenters are now capitalizing on these murders to crack down on their population. Sarkozy already met Hollande, and they both agreed that new levels of firmness and vigilance need to be implemented. Does that not reek of a French 9-11? Mm-hmm. Passports. Yeah. One more thing about the hypocrisy about the free speech angle. So we have these magazine editors and cartoonists that were killed. Well, last year, 66, at least 66 journalists were killed in conflict situations, at least six in Ukraine. And I read one, one report saying 17 journalists were killed in the, the situation in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Now, Syria is a bad place to be due. Syria, too. Ukraine is the worst, apparently. It has the, the most threats against journalists, um, not necessarily the most deaths. But, um, yeah, so... When this happens in a country that the U.S. doesn't like, that the West in general doesn't like, not a big deal. But when it happens in France, it's a huge deal. And all I'm saying is all these people should have an equal voice. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another, yet another angle, too, which is France was starting to get out of line. Um, Paul Craig Roberts talks about a ex-informant, um, FBI, I believe, informant that he has. And... He said, a former White House official, okay, White House official says the terrorist attacks that killed 12 people on Wednesday in Paris was a false flag operation designed to shore up France's vassal status to Washington. So apparently, Hollande was uh, making a big mistake of attempting to think and or act for himself and for France. And you think of what he's done in the last couple of months. He had a very uh, surprising off-schedule meeting with Vladimir Putin, and, and apparently it was in an airport with no scheduling, uh, very, very quiet, uh, very quick. So, you know, but apparently Putin walked out smiling. Hollande looked rather pleased himself, uh, took everyone by surprise. I believe that uh, France recognized Palestine Mm -hmm. and is supporting other moves that Palestine is making. 
which of course makes Israel very unhappy. And if you say Israel, you have to talk about Mossad, and we can talk about that with respect to this situation too. And um, France was very unhappy because their uh, shipbuilding was suffering because the Mistral uh, ships they were supposed to sell to Russia are now on hold due to sanctions. And I think he was quietly agitating to get those sanctions lifted because they are losing a ton of money and are in a position to be sued for a ton more by Russia for uh, breaching their contract. So he was making moves that were making Washington a little unhappy and a little empty. Plus, he was probably the only leader in the EU who has come out, um, you know, saying that uh, the EU and the U.S. should probably not be sanctioning Russia anymore, mm -hmm. and and how wrongheaded those policies are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on the heels of uh, of these statements and his moves, um, it's, it's almost uh, it's almost a formula for some kind of covert response in the form of these guys coming in there and shooting up Hebdo and, uh, and killing 10 or 12 others. And don't forget that Netanyahu also warned France back in late November of last year <clears throat> about uh, uh, France. Uh, he, he gave a warning to France if they were going to support the Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. That was a, He said it would be a grave error. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, if, if you just look at the timeline of events, uh, it, it's pretty interesting. When you look at it from like the like the the angle you guys are saying of not only um, relating to Israel and Palestine, but the U.S. and NATO and Russia. Um, so on the well, first of all, last year um, there were all those strange flyovers of the the French nuclear facilities. Oh, with drones. Yeah, with drones, and so these are, these were high quality drones. Joe and Neil have talked about the, this before on on uh, behind the headlines. So on November 9th, the French government was on high alert because these drones couldn't catch any of them. November 9th. Then it was on November 23rd that Netanyahu gave that warning, saying it would be a grave mistake, is what he said. A grave mistake if France would recognize Palestine. A couple weeks later, on December 6th, that was when Hollande met with Putin in Moscow. And then on the 31st, so right before New Year, that was when France voted in favor of Palestinian statehood at the at, on the UN at the UN. Then five days later, on the fifth, um, Hollande urges Russian sanctions to end. And then, day January sixth, this kind of seems odd. Oh, the French military announces that they're sending an aircraft carrier to the Gulf to fight ISIS in Iraq. And then January seventh, we have the attacks. And Charlie Hebdo, and um, so that's a it's a strange series of events when you look at it. It's like what's going on behind the scenes. Well, it just seems like this attack is very coincidentally timed mm -hmm. at the very least, and has multiple good effects for certain people. Mm -hmm. And go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say Netanyahu um, has now been equating. Uh, the attackers with uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. So you know, now, you know, he had to get that in there, and uh, of course, the the situation could not be more different. But um, he does get to uh, he does get to stick that in there, and that's something that he has been heard to say to Hollande. 
Um, and of course, he also said the key goal of Islamic terror is to destroy our societies and our countries, to uproot our human culture, which is based on freedom and a culture of choice, and to impose in its place a fundamentalist dictatorship, which will return humanity to years long past. Never mind that uh, you know, Netanyahu and uh, and the Israeli government has been. Uh, supporting elements of the uh, Free Syria movement, um, covertly giving them first aid. I just never, never criticizes Israel. It's it's deafening how nothing has ever come out of ISIS about Israel. You'd think that would be number one on the list. Also, this gave Netanyahu an opportunity to be neighborly and helpful to France. Uh, we see written in Herat that. Uh, President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu confirmed on January 9th the dispatch of an Israeli police SWAT team, which would be working in liaison with its French counterparts. It specializes in siege situations and rescue, ready to stand by to assist French authorities to resolve the siege of the kosher grocery store. Never mind the print thing, but the kosher grocery store. We're worried about that. Uh, in addition to the SWAT team, uh, Netanyahu has ordered Mossad to provide French officials with all the assistance they need in tackling the ongoing terror situation in and around Paris. What this suggests is that Mossad agents would be operating on French soil in partnership with France's Direction Générale de la Sécurité Extérieure, formerly known as the Deuxième Bureau. So this is a lovely opportunity to get more Mossad agents embedded in France. Because they're so helpful. How convenient. How convenient. And then now who also kind of uh, tried to relate Hamas and the Palestinians to this as well, yeah. talking about how they've been fighting terrorism for many years now and that the world should join them into this fight of terrorism. Mm -hmm. Israel stands for Europe, so too Europe must stand with Israel. Notice how there's a must in there. <laughs> but shortly after that, Abbas and Hamas both uh, condemned the attacks and also sent their condolences to Obama. Well, Dershowitz is back. Oh, yay. He, you know, what now? Because he, he had something to say about the attacks, too. Uh, first, um, he was on the show Midpoint on Newsmax TV, and to host Ed Berliner, he said that, quote, France is one of the worst countries when it comes to rewarding terrorism. They play with everybody. They reward every terrorist. I hate to pile on when they're suffering like this, but you have to you have to understand how bad France has been historically in the war against terrorism. Now, to give a little bit of clarity, he was on a, another show. Um, I can't remember what the name of the other show was, but he was but he was confronted about this statement that he made by the host of this other show. So here's a clip of him on this show justifying his position on France. They the point I was making was a general one, and that is that they voted. Palestinian statehood for a country that was built on terrorism. They have done everything to avoid joining the fight on terrorism. I feel terrible for these people. I feel terrible for Virtually France, every country in the world has voted for that statehood. You know that. United States hasn't, and Virtually many other countries country have in not. The world. Well, good countries don't vote for it. So and when most you vote, countries when in you the world are Alan war, Dershowitz bad countries. Europe is part of the problem. France is part of the problem. I feel terribly sorry for the victims, but France is part of the problem. Maybe this will give them a wake-up call and have 
have them join the war against terrorism rather than becoming part of the problem of facilitating and rewarding I, I terrorism. Oh, my Lord. Palestine is a country founded on terrorism? Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, he's correct. <laughs> in a sense. In a, yeah, but... Oh, I mean, oh, Finkelstein, I, oh, you were right. Oh, you were right. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so there's Dershowitz. Um, okay, it's, it's just amazing. But if you think about what he said, he, he's kind of right about France, you know, supporting terrorists, but just not in the way that he's talking about it. He's He's saying that France supports terrorism because they support Palestine. And all Palestinians are terrorists, which is ridiculous and not true. But France kind of does have a little bit of a hairy relationship when it comes to terrorism. I mean, and so does Israel, like you mentioned, Ilan. They both are supporting terrorists in Syria, for instance. Now, in 2011, France helped arm the, quote, rebels in Libya, these same rebels who admitted having ties and links to al-Qaeda. So there's an instance of France arming and supporting al-Qaeda. Then in 2013, well, in 2012, the French government said they planned on on, uh, giving support to the rebels in Syria. 2013, they followed through with that and have been since then. Yeah, but in Libya, al-Qaeda were our good guys, right, against Gaddafi. So that was okay. So, I mean... Dershowitz sure. can't can't pull that up as a as, you know those kinds of things up because that's a, that's supporting a Western agenda. Mm-hmm. You should be all for that. That's the good Al Qaeda. Yeah, that's the, the good Al Qaeda. Oh yeah, as opposed to the bad Al Qaeda. All right, got it. So, so you've got France and multiple other countries supporting terrorism in Ukraine, Syria, Libya, etc. But that's all right. But then you've got Dershowitz saying that no, they're actually supporting terrorism because they're supporting Palestine when the IDF is the biggest terrorist organization on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Well, for Alan, it doesn't have to. No. <laughs> because he's a pathological liar. Um, well, a little uh, back to things going on in France. So we've had the demonstrations all over the country um, but at the same time, you know, amid all this um, solidarity and um, mourning in France and across the world, we've also had in these past few days several instances of what can only be called hate crimes against the Muslim population in France. Just in the first day after the attack, there were three revenge attacks. Um, a mosque was shot at and uh, blank grenades were thrown into this mosque. A prayer hall was shot at with guns, and a kebab shop was blown up. These were all in three different parts, three different regions in France. Um, there was graffiti saying death to Arabs that propped up, popped up in various spots. Um, a high school student, Muslim high school student, was beaten. A car to a family Muslim, a car to uh, a Muslim family was shot at. And those were just from the past couple of days. There are more that have come out in the past day or so. I don't have them in front of me. You can easily search them, Google them, and find out what's going on. So on the one hand, you have people 
you know, out there speaking up for free speech. And on the other hand, you've got people senselessly attacking people who had nothing to do with this. And that just strikes me as a, a pretty telling dichotomy, juxtaposition of positions to take. How, on the one hand, you can have something you know, so noble and, and democratic as standing up for free speech, but on the other, you can have something so base as as to just lash out at the first Muslim you see. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just disgusting. Well, it's all part of hurting the population. For um, for raising the, the level of uh, hate and divisiveness among people, keeping them confused, angry, uh, it succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Roberts does say that the CIA has apparently resurrected a policy that it followed against Europeans during post-World War II era when the spy agency would carry out attacks on European states and blame them on communists. So you just take that little game plan and retool it. The U.S. agencies have planned false flag operations in Europe to create hatred against Muslims and bring European countries under Washington's sphere of influence. The attack on Charlie Hebdo was an inside job and that people identified by NSA as hostile to the Western wars against Muslims are going to be framed for an inside job designed to pull France firmly back under Washington's thumb. So, pretty much seems to sum it up. Seeming to have at least at this point, the desired effect. Well, I, I think you can. at this point we can even look at it either way. It either was or wasn't a false flag, but it doesn't really make a difference either way. Mm-hmm. Um, because it very well could have been a false flag. I mean, it follows the, the modus operandi pretty to the letter. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I mean, the, when you hire a mercenary army and you fund them and you train them, and you radicalize them using certain certain ideas. I mean, mercenaries aren't reliable people. Mm-hmm. They can turn on you in a, in a, on a dime. And the but the 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 interesting thing is that they've the the people behind this have framed it in such a way that either either option works in their favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. This could be a genuine attack from people who genuinely think that they're you know doing God's will. And it serves the same purpose as if it was a false flag operation. No, it could be that whatever whatever handlers may or may not have been involved in it just got these, uh, theoretically, these two guys, we don't know for sure if it's these two guys all wound up about it and saying, we're going to go off and do something, and they've insulted the prophet. But, I mean, we see the same thing done by the FBI in the mm-hmm. U.S. where they will gather a bunch of, you know, young kids, 19, 20, probably unemployed, definitely angry about their situation. and you know, lead them in a terrorist cell and then turn around and inform on them and get them arrested, you know, and then they say they have foiled a terrorist plot. And that's the difference. Is the FBI always gets their man. <laughs> Before anything bad happens, because that's what we do. Literally their man. <laughs> but, you know, that it's not always the case when these things happen. Yeah. Well, anything else on that subject? We'll just have to see how it develops from here. Mm-hmm. But the chance, you know, there won't be a trial. We've got two dead people. It's like the the Boston bombing. Mm-hmm. They're dead. They're gone. So you know, the event, the version of events that we get will be the ones that are prepared. There'll be no open out airing of it. Well, with the Boston bombing, there's still 
um, what's his name? Um, Jokar Tarnayev. Yeah. Because his trial is coming up. Oh, that's right. But there's been a, a kind, uh, almost like a gag order put on him, so he can't say certain things to certain people. And, you know, they've probably got him totally drugged up. And so even even if he's still alive, you know, who knows what what he can say. Well, the whole thing just played out like a Steven Seagal action movie, you know. It was it was it was like there was the film script, mm-hmm. you know. Bad thing happened, car chase, shootout, suspects dead. It's so formulaic. It's it's sad. Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah. If we if we want to say anything else, we can go back to it. But I think we can move on from that right. for now. We'll come back to it if there's any. Well, <clears throat> there is one little thing that kind of ties Syria into this. Um, Apparently, the attackers were from Syria, al-Qaeda in Syria. Now there's a claims that Syria is developing a hidden underground mm-hmm. nuclear facility. Oh, Lord. And that's uh, a couple miles away from the Lebanese border. It's called Zamzam. So that's something to keep an eye on. Apparently, Syria transferred 8,000 fuel rods to the plant, and North Korea and Iran are thought to be in in you know, helping them with this plant. Uh, the unnamed sources says they have pictures and have uh, conversations about this. And also Hezbollah is apparently guarding this secret project. So mm-hmm. that's something to keep an eye on as you know, the weapons of mass destruction are starting to appear again. Exactly. You know, William, I had a chat with someone the other day, and uh, it's a year on since the whole kind of red line with Syria using chemical weapons on its own people idea got propagated. And, of course, it's since been thoroughly disproven um, and connections have been made to uh, Saudi Arabia. And this person I spoke to was still, in spite of all this information, but I guess they're just not getting this information uh, where they're looking and um, and still believed in her heart that uh, Syria was this, you know, the Assad regime was this very evil place. So you're going to have a whole bunch of folks who are hearing about this underground nuclear development, make mm-hmm. the connection in their minds about evil Iran, um, and uh, and it's just going to justify whatever aggression the U.S. You know, decides to to make in the next months or so. They're, they're, they may very well be building a nuclear thing there, but it's, it's probably ISIS that's building it. Well, God knows yeah, they're, 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 I mean, they're, they're going to sell making, the energy. They're, they're not making any money on oil right now, so you know you got to diversify. <laughs> yeah, ISIS nuclear energy, the clean way. <laughs> We've got a future. <laughs> okay, right. moving on. Well, do you want to take it away, Lon? I think you've got something you want to bring up. Well, um, on uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day um, on the 19th. And I was recently rewatching uh, Evidence of Revision, um, the Assassination of America, which uh, discusses the uh, assassinations of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, and gets into a couple of other topics, and really does a great job of, um, you know, showing the patterns in all of these events. And uh, I read Scott fairly often. And a lot of things have also 
come out this year about um, Martin Luther King Jr. and his uh, the, the almost pathological um, obsession with which Hoover, uh, who was then at the head of the FBI when uh, Martin Luther King was um, at his height, at the height of his uh, activism and speeches, uh, the way he went after King was just unbelievable. And so um, a letter uh, has come to surface that was received by King at some point, accusing King of um, of all sorts of uh, perversions and abnormalities. Um, and King knew who it was from, uh, since you know Hoover had made no um, no bones about hating King and calling him a liar publicly. Um, so these kinds of bits of information that have come out uh, in recent months and brushing off evidence of revision um, reminded me of another article that came out uh, on King. And, and that was uh, the fact that he was so uh, outspoken on the subject of uh, Vietnam. Um, and uh, at the time, the, the public was kind of raging about it. But to have a, a man like King come out and speak about it and, and how it was connected to the economic inequality in the U.S. and, and the oppressive nature of uh, U.S. government and how many billions and trillions of dollars they were spending fighting this obscene war when you had... Um, he had ghettos. He still had many ghettos and and uh, many underprivileged and and out of work people in the U.S. Uh, he had become a a kind of a threat to um, the powers that be, if you will, uh, in a way that he hadn't in the years when he was just talking about uh, voting rights and uh, desegregation in the South and. Um, it it really kind of put a um, a new spin on uh, or just a, a a serious revisiting of, of the reason why King was murdered. So we plan to talk about this a little bit today and follow this up a bit uh, next weekend uh, on our next show. Um, we've got a couple of clips that. Uh, that really uh, get to the heart of the matter of what King was saying at the time and, and the fact that many people were listening. And keep in mind, we you know, we know and are taught about and mostly hear about uh, King's, um, you know, the legislation that, that his I Have a Dream speech uh, helped propel, um, you know, the Civil Rights Act uh, and some other things but kind of excised from the uh, memory of his life. You know, we don't hear anything these days about his strong position on the war in Vietnam and the various things that he was planning to do. Um, he was going to process of organizing a poor people's march on Washington, D.C. Um, in the months before he was assassinated. Uh, this would have meant that he would have come to Washington, D.C. with thousands 
of you know the dispossessed of the U.S. Um, who were connecting all the resources and energy and, and money that was going into the war with continuing to leave people out of uh, social services and, and just getting you know basic um, basic help from the government. So we have uh, we have one speech. It's the shorter of the two. It's uh, it's basically his his last speech. You've heard it before. It's probably as uh, as well known as the "I Have a Dream" speech. And um, oof, the man knows. <laughs> he knows what he's up against, and uh, he's not going to stop um, in spite of this. Uh, so maybe we can hear that for a moment and share our impressions of it. to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right.
rejected certain tenets of Christianity. Uh, and um, and then kind of um, out of a what he called an inner urge to serve humanity, uh, decided that, you know, though there weren't things that he could completely accept about the Bible, um, things about it. Uh, so he became a reverend. Um, you know, he went to seminary. And uh, and really, I think, used it as a, as a vehicle uh, to do what his inner... Uh, you know, innermost being was telling him needed to be done. Um, so, you know, as I was mentioning before, uh, there is this um, the second speech, which is much less known, uh, and given exactly one year to the day before he was assassinated. Um, it's known as his uh, as his Beyond Vietnam. A time to break the silence speech, and um, he really lays it all out there. Um, I have never heard this speech or about it uh, until it, it's been making you know the rounds on the web and, and recent articles, and as I mentioned earlier, and evidence of revision. Uh, he was calling, basically calling the U.S. government. Uh, out to the floor um, on its uh, involvement in the war. And, um, you know, it really kind of speaks speaks for itself. Um, so maybe we can hear that as well. Okay. A bit longer. Here we go. And the time has come for America to hear the truth about this tragic war. Now, I've chosen to preach about the war in Vietnam today because I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. There comes the time when silence is betrayal. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is the most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom. There has never been such a monumental dissent during a war by the American people. Polls reveal that almost 15 million Americans explicitly oppose the war in Vietnam. Additional millions cannot bring themselves around to support it. This reveals that millions have chosen to move beyond 
the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. It's a dark day in our nation when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. Something is happening and people are not going to be silent. The truth must be told, and I say that those who are seeking to make it appear that anyone who opposes the war in Vietnam is a fool or a traitor or an enemy of our soldiers is a person who has taken a stand against the best in our tradition. Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. And so this morning I speak to you on this issue because I am determined to take the gospel seriously. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched the program broken as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. And you may not know it, my friends, but it is estimated that we spend $500,000 to kill each enemy soldier while we spend only $53 for each person classified as poor. And much of that $53 goes for salaries to people who are not poor. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attack it as such. Perhaps the more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me 
that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in extraordinarily high proportion relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schoolroom. So we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago or Atlanta. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. My own government. The greatest purveyor of violence today, my own government, the United States. Things haven't changed a bit. No. Not at all. Hmm. Things he was saying are, are just as relevant today as they were then. Absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have a man like King today to, to mm-hmm. say these things and to be heard. Uh, Barack Obama, who's been given the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, just coming out of the gate, not doing anything. Um, he made a pretty speech. He did make a pretty speech. He read a pretty speech written for him by someone else. Maybe, the, maybe that guy should have got the Nobel Peace Prize. Interestingly, uh, King was the youngest um, individual to have ever uh, been given the Peace Prize. He was 35 years of age. This was, I think, in 1964. And uh, and he earned it. I mean, the man was, I think he was arrested a dozen times um, in uh, making marches and, and, and protests that weren't officially sanctioned or permitted. Um so yeah, so next week we'll uh, we'll be looking at a little bit of uh, who King's real enemies were, especially after that speech in Vietnam and and his plans to uh, to come to D.C. with tens of thousands of uh, of individuals, and, um, and we'll also look a little bit at why we don't know certain things about 
uh, the king assassination, which may be obvious, but uh, we'll look at them anyway. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there are no, we don't have a king today. I think one of the reasons that we don't is that, well, for the reason that he was assassinated and that so many like him have been assassinated since. I mean, the 60s were big for assassinations. And since then, there have been more. And it seems like anyone that can really make a difference is just taken out. And the people we have today, like the voices that we turn to, the voices of reason, I mean, it, it seems like most of them tend to be comedians. <laughs> and they get away with it because they make jokes about it. And they're good, and they're funny, and they're insightful. But there's just a different climate today than there was 50 years ago. Yeah. All we have left are the jesters. Yeah. yeah. And uh, people of, of King's quality are extremely rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the guy was uh, erudite and had incredible character and will and was never content to uh, to stay with one platform or, or one goal or one idea. I mean, he he saw connections to bigger things and yet bigger things, and decided that you know to tackle any one of them, you, you kind of had to look at the whole thing in a, in its broader picture. And uh, who was willing to do that? Well, the other thing that you look at too is that uh, these people of the '60s would have mentored the next generation, and they were basically cut off at the knees. So any potential people who could have picked up and carried on their causes and their vision are left. I mean, they might have been there, but they were left without guidance and a warning. You know, ideas along this line. This is what's going to happen to you. If you think about what it takes, like the the clip, the first speech from King there, to be in a position like King and to be a personality like King, you have to be willing to die. Mm Mm-hmm. And not in the kind of kamikaze, you know, go out in a in a bang kind of way. It's the it's the threat that around any door might be an assassin's bullet. Living in that constant tension that you're not you're not just throwing your life away for a cause. It's that you are like like King was saying, he would like to live you know, it would be great to have to live up to an old age. And think about how much he could have done if he had. But uh, but with the constant tension and awareness that at any moment he could be killed. And if you think about the moral crises that ordinary people have, the majority of the population, worried about what their friends think about women. Mm-hmm. Or even how they're going to feed their kids next week. Yeah. I mean, the people have real pressing, one could even say artificially created problems that occupy all your time and all your energy just getting from day to day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this little tidbit about uh, about King's autopsy. And the man who performed it looked at his heart. King was about 38 or 39 when he was assassinated. And the uh, the doctor who performed the autopsy said that King had a, that his heart was um, in the condition of a 60-year-old. So, you know, the amount of stress and uh, and difficulties um, that he had to negotiate while he was uh, fighting 
um, and and continuing to fight further must have been in, incredibly difficult. Yeah, I think he, among many others, can serve as a and should serve as a role model for people today. I don't know how many kids these days listen to old speeches from the 60s or before, but they really should. I think it's very. I think it's really important because we don't have people like that living today, or very few. I mean, we've got you know Vladimir Putin is exceptional in many ways. He doesn't quite have the the rhetorical flourish that King had when when giving speeches. No, not in English. No, I mean, he's probably oh. even in Russian. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. We'll have to hear from some of our Russian listeners to see if he's got the same uh, oratory skills. But uh, but he says, but Putin, for example, says a lot of the same things. How many how many politicians or just speakers like King or like Putin or like people like them talk about the importance of conscience and doing what is right as opposed to what is convenient or what serves interests. And now, what, what benefits the most people and makes their lives happier and healthier and more humane. Okay, we, we've, we've heard from our chatters that, yeah, he does have the the Russian oratorical skills. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, there we've got we've got one good example. Yeah, I figured in his native language, he's he's probably fantastic. But all we get are you know we get transcripts and we get very harried translators yeah. on the fly. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Is listening to the translators as they're trying to think of what he's saying while they're while they're saying it, and yeah, it just doesn't come across very well. <laughs> but uh, but. I just want to come back to role models and the importance of actually reading about the lives of people who actually made a difference. As long as, if you don't have any kind of benchmark to go from, then you're just going to continue living your life worrying about what your friends think about what you're wearing mm-hmm. or something similar and trivial. And those things don't matter. I mean, if if you can, if you listen to a speech like the ones that you just heard and then you start thinking about stuff like that, I mean, that's the time to slap yourself and you know say get a hold of yourself, person, because there are things that are a lot more important than the moral quandaries that the the modern you know hipster finds himself in or herself. Well, guys like King were literally taking it upon themselves to better humanity, mm-hmm. and uh, you know <laughs> that the uh, the intention there can't be. Um, underestimated or, or belittled. I mean, that, that was really what he was trying to do. He he had, you know, from his corner, from his background, from his experience, he was putting humanity on his back. Mm-hmm. Um, something that he did a, a, a few days after uh, that, that last speech that we heard was uh, he had a little march and a speech. Um, he went right up to the U.N., um, you know, he wanted to end the draft, and he wanted uh, the UN to take some action about the war in Vietnam. So, you know, he he was he was taking everything to its next possible uh, step, and taking responsibility himself personally. Um, you know, so. 
very few people have that kind of will or vision. Uh, and like you were saying, Harrison, about role models. Um, if we do get the picture of, of a of a role model these days, it's so sanitized, it's so uh, it's so minimized. It's you know we really don't have any sense as to what it took for these people and what they felt inside, what what their conscience was telling them to do uh, in order to move things a step further for for people in a totally unself interested way. I blame the movies partly. If you look at the trend that movies have taken over the past decade or two, especially with all the superhero movies, and and you look at how characters are presented and how heroes are presented, especially the superheroes, just the level of the, the superficial level of of their own moral crises. I mean, it's all about oh, well, I've got all this power. Oh, but I've got. Uh, a, a tragic backstory. How am I going to deal with it? And then I'm, oh, and then I'm going to go, you know, kill a bunch of bad guys. And that's pretty much how every superhero movie plays out. Mm-hmm. But what about a superhero movie about like a real life superhero? Because that's not the way things play out in real life. Well, they're kind of in short supply at this point. Yeah. Well, speaking of movies, um, they did just come out with a new movie about uh, King called Selma. I think it was produced in part by Oprah Winfrey and um it it basically covers one of one of several uh dramatic events in King's life where um he went to Selma, Alabama and uh and was and was marching there against injunction and and um and all of the uh all of the forces that he ran up against. So the reviews of it are excellent. Um Will it convey a, a part of who King really was? I hope so. I'd love to see a movie about mm-hmm. King's latter days uh, and and the decision to uh, take on the powers that be and to go against what um, what uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, was trying to maneuver him to do. Uh, that to me would be a, a little more interesting, but. You know, if we can get a good insight into who King was and a, and a renewed appreciation for the man, then you know, kudos to Winfrey and all the other creators of the movie Selma. Yeah, we have a a movie about King's last years or last days would be good because it would have a great villain too, the <laughs> the cross dressing, power hungry maniac J Edgar Hoover, right. the Mad Dog. I'd like I'd love to see a movie where he was exposed to the the monster that he was. Well, you have that um Leonardo DiCaprio Clint Eastwood vehicle uh Hoover, I think it was called. But that was kind of cleaned up a little bit. I, yeah, I they didn't pulled their it. punches on that one. They did, huh? Yeah. yeah, that's Hollywood for you. Well, if you want access, you have to play. And I'm sure they had to get the cooperation of the FBI to do it. So. Well, we watched a movie recently, 12 Years a Slave. Um, and that, well, the, the way into this, because um, we heard King in his first speech using biblical language. And I think he did it quite well, like you were saying, Alan. He was using words and concepts 
way. It was kind of almost hijacking those concepts, those words, to get across emotional content. So when he was talking about the promised land and the mountain, he wasn't talking about a literal mountain or the promised land of Israel. He was using it in a kind of allegorical meaning. And you can, just from the tone of his voice, you can feel what he means by that. Mm-hmm. Anyone listening to just that two-minute clip knows what the promised land is without even having it defined. But at the same time, a religious language like that can go either way. And like that's what we see, for example, with ISIS and Islamic terrorism, so-called. Because you can use words however you want and hijack them with your own content. And in this 12 Years a Slave uh, movie, which I recommend watching, I really, I really enjoyed it. Well, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but it's a good movie. Um, in that, you see a few clips of people using biblical language to justify the unjustifiable. And it's it's just a small part of the movie, but it's just it, it struck me how a person's inner content, what they have in their own mind, inspires how they how they use words, how they use concepts, and how they manipulate those to manipulate other people. Well, then they have a shared content. So somebody who has that kind of mindset knows mm-hmm. the elements that make up the the cultural, you know, line of the time and how people have been raised. And so there's this ready-made set of images and archetypes and and phrases that are, will already read that they know will resonate and it's just mm-hmm. how they're arranged and how they're how you know you use them to put forth an intent that probably wasn't the original mm-hmm. but by the same token you know having never gone to Sunday school and and listening to a few of um King's speeches a few times i mean i, I couldn't help but get choked up by, by them mm-hmm. uh it's it's very clear that he's not pounding you over the head with, you know, quote-unquote Christian values. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, it's it's almost agnostic. But, you know, like Harrison was saying, that this appropriation of the language to get across these very high ideals uh, was power of the man. Mm-hmm. And they were appropriate to everything he was saying. I mean, it it was remarkable. So, you know, like if I if I heard someone say, you know, and God told me that uh, I, you know, I, I'm supposed to do this, uh, me and my very, you know, cynical <laughs> background. I mean, it's very easy to scoff at because most people just sound like buffoons when they say such a thing, but not King. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he had some kind of spiritual mission to accomplish. All right. Well, it looks like we've got a caller, uh, Mike from St. Paul, Minnesota. So, Mike, what do you want to say? What do you want to ask us? Hi there. Yeah. Uh, no, hi there, guys. Uh, great show. I just wanted to ask you guys a question. Now, the last guy who spoke, from what I get, I'm guessing you're agnostic or maybe atheist. Is that Would that be accurate? Uh, that would be, uh, well, I wouldn't say atheist. I would say agnostic. Probably okay. closer. Would that be everybody on the show here, or do we have anyone that would consider themselves a Christian? Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, 
I, I'd say uh, personally, I'd probably go the agnostic route as well. I wouldn't. I, the reason I say maybe, maybe not is that I wouldn't call myself a Christian simply because uh-huh. of the connotations of what most Christians think and believe. But uh, okay. Well, I guess if I be more accurate, do you believe in the Bible as actually being no. from God, or so you okay? So do you believe God exists? Me neither. I I believe that there are higher intelligences uh, right. and, and uh, higher powers. Yes. And if you delve okay. into the history of the Bible in in any kind of scholarly way, it becomes yeah. quickly apparent that it's it's an assemblage of many many different texts. Uh, written at different times, rewritten at other times, and it, it's it's quite the hodgepodge that's been cobbled together. So right, there right. are elements of, of value in it, but as the inerrant word of God, uh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, no one, no one should be something that's inerrant. Points you made is sort of a sort of almost a myth that a lot of people have been perpetuating. And as someone who's, uh, I'm, I'm only 28, and I used to be an atheist until the age of 23. And uh, I've come to learn that a lot of these ideas that are put out there about the Bible, about God, are completely myths that the secular portions of our country have been just pushing. And people believed it because they heard it enough. And they claim they do research, but they really don't. Because if they did, they know the Bible has over 5,300 manuscripts that agreed to an infinitesimal degree. And we have no document from antiquity, especially from that era, that even comes close to that. First of all, secondly, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls today, which show us the Old Testament 200 years before the time of Christ that we can look at, that we can compare to what we have today. See, is there mm-hmm. any major changes that that hasn't happened? And I've studied this thoroughly. I used to, I used to mock religion. I used to think the Bible was ridiculous. And then when I was willing to put my personal beliefs to the side and actually test it and look at it and allow the evidence to lead me, the conclusion is so clear. And what I find amazing is that you see God's hand in history, and it's undeniable. The fact that America is the pinnacle nation today is a complete direct reflection of what God promised in the Bible. And to me, it's no, it's no, it's, it's no coincidence that every country in the world that at some point was founded on the, on, the, on the idea that the God of the Bible was their God is the head of all nations. I mean, isn't that, it's not a coincidence that America and Europe are at the front. Of everything, they're well, at the top of everything. Well, you, you've just said quite a lot there. Your name's Mike, right? Yes, sir. Mike, and I, I thank you for um, for sharing that. Um, one of the points that uh, that I think we can discuss here is the idea that the U.S. is the the pinnacle, the the shining uh, the shining city. Um, and one of the points that we're um, trying to get across here with the show is that um, that idea, that perception, has is uh, largely been largely false. Um, but b- before I go Based there, on what I, standard I, exactly? Like, are I'm you sorry? judging America? Are you judging America compared to the rest of the world? Because I've been to Europe, I've been to Africa, I've seen Asia. Mm-hmm. There's no country on this planet. Like America, the, the atmosphere itself, there's something just on this country that's unique that you don't find anywhere else. I mean, the fact that Americans, for the most part, are probably the most compassionate people on the planet. Like, they treat the poor here with at least a certain amount of dignity. 
which you don't find anywhere else. The rest of the world, they treat the poor like subhuman, like dogs. I mean, that's something people well, don't I realize. I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't agree oh. that it's that black oh, really? and white. Yeah. Oh, it really um, is. That, it's, it's that significant. There's a reason why in America, for example, you go around and look at the fact that this is the only country where someone can start from low, a low-class standing in society. And through their hard work and effort and discipline and ingenuity, they can uh, grow with very little limitations. That doesn't exist okay. anywhere else. One thing that, that you might not have perceived, Mike, uh, this is Carolyn, um, that what we generally discuss, especially when we are critical of America, is not the citizen population, which I can agree the vast majority are compassionate, decent, hardworking people. But what we criticize and point up are the actions of the government, which, if you check the world today, is a very meddlesome, violent, destructive, greedy entity. That is what we have issues with. But that exists in every country, in every aspect, in the whole history of mankind. Every government has been corrupt. People, rich people have used it to their own advantage. The question is, does it go too far to the point where people are being oppressed? Does it go to the point uh-huh. where people are being exploited? Now, that's not happening in America today. Oh. Yes, oh, they're doing I, they're I, doing. We'd all, oh, no, I no, think no. we'd all disagree Again, with that. Again, it's your yeah. standard. What, you have to grade it on a curve. You don't grade it on the ideals. Ideals don't work in the, in the real world. They're not practical. We're talking about well, the actual have- real life. If you compare America to every other country in the history of mankind, and look at what? the real level of oppression that has taken place. I, I'm well, from my, my family's from a communist nation, and I know firsthand what the communists did to people, and how they <laughs> brutally oppressed and killed people. Okay, right. as bad as America's government may be, and I know there's a lot of terrible things they do on the on the low that people don't know about, and how they meddle in different countries for their own economic benefits. I understand that, but mm-hmm. every country that has a, that has a pinnacle status whether it was Britain in the past or France or Germany or the Roman Empire, we can go through every major empire. That's how they maintain their power. That's common sense. America wouldn't be the place it is if it didn't do that. That goes without well, saying. Hi, Columbus. Look what happened to each of those entities as they hit, hit the end of their lifespan. We do believe the U.S. is on its way out, even as the Roman Empire or the French Empire or the British Empire has. Their actions are those of a very desperate system. Well, uh, but the one thing Mike, you miss in that is well, you have so many good of, people in it. Sorry, Mike, we're getting to the end of the show here, so we're going to cut you off there before we close. But uh, feel free to call back another day, and we'll continue the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you gonna, for calling, Mike. Yes, thank you we're very much for up. your call. But, yeah, now, before we close out, I just can't agree that, for example, the, the amount of poverty in the States, yes, there's poverty everywhere, but... Poverty is a big problem in the States. Yeah, the disparity, like the top 1% own more than, I think it's like 60% of the, the rest of the country or something like that. And, and the myth that we're upwardly mobile in the way that Mike suggests is is, uh, is not correct. It's another myth. Yeah. Well, and but I do agree that uh, the U.S. is the pinnacle, but it's uh, um, but I can't agree that it's the pinnacle of anything good. When we look at like things that Mike agreed with, like the the warfare, the things that go on behind the scenes, I mean any bad thing that you can say about any evil regime, the United States does torture, assassination, 
just total exploitation of the workforce, if you look at it that way. Uh, and again, just look at the Franklin scandal. Look at the, the horrible things that go on behind the scenes. Now, of course, that's not to say, well, I think there's a difference between America, the United States, the government, the ruling oligarchy, and the people. But even even the American people, how much are they doing as a collective is better, because I don't think things are good. And I think idealism, in a certain sense, has a real good place in the world, because you need an ideal to strive towards in order to identify what is wrong in the present to make for a better future. But you have to have the objectivity to identify what's wrong. If you just mm -hmm. stick with your ideals and say, oh, everything is happy and good, and we have all these lofty principles, but can't look around and see where they're not being applied. Well, we're coming down to the end of the show, so I think we'll close it there. We'll be back next week with um, some more of Martin Luther King, and we'll probably also be discussing a book, uh, you, are, you Are Not So Smart, and it's uh, something that I think that applies to most people, including everyone, us here. But. <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we will talk again next week, so take care. I know. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.